Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 306. I'm your host, Douglas Wilson, and I'm glad you decided to join us. So what I'd like to talk about uh, here is the covenant with Hagar. The covenant. Why do I want to do that? Well, uh, I have a book. Uh, my next book is coming out in a few weeks. It's called American Milk and Honey. American Milk and Honey. And the subtitle has to do with the anti-Semitism the promises of Deuteronomy, and the true Israel of God. Now, you may have heard many references at church and in other places in the books you read to the Judeo-Christian tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition. And there's a sense in which that's fair enough, but there are a lot of senses in which it, it, it misrepresents what's actually going on. Christians believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah predicted by the Old Testament. And Jews, unbelieving Jews, that is, uh, Jews who are not Christians, don't believe that Jesus was that Messiah. Now, let's, let's um, remove from the discussion atheistic Jews or, or highly secular Jews. Let's uh, talk about the Hasidim or the, you know, the modern-day Pharisees. Or the, or the observant Jews, the Jews who are religiously observant, okay? Religiously observant Jews are committed to the idea that Jesus was not that Christ. Jesus was not that Messiah. Now, that's kind of a dividing line right there. You can't really split the difference. Uh, Jesus either was the Messiah, in which case, the Jews are totally wrong, or Jesus was the Messiah, was not the Messiah, in which case the Christians are totally wrong. If the Christians are totally wrong, as Paul put it, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if uh, the Christians are right, then the Jews are, they, they missed that train. They, they, they didn't believe in the Messiah, their Messiah, when he arrived. So the question I'm I'm wanting to raise and answer in this book, and the the question I'm raising here now, is where does that put the Jews? What do we, um, where do we place them? Uh, what shelf do we put them on in the great filing cabinet of theology? Where where do we put this? I think there are two metaphors that we can use. Uh, one of them is the metaphor of the olive tree found in Romans 11. So Paul says, uh, basically, the Jews were cut out, unbelieving Jews were cut out of the olive tree, and wild olive shoots, the Gentiles, the Greeks, were grafted into the Abrahamic tree. So you've got this olive tree, who is the root of this olive tree is Christ, of course, and the promises to Abraham, and Greeks and Scythians and Romans and all sorts of uh, Gentile characters believed on Christ, and were grafted into the tree. And unbelieving Jews were excised. Uh, unbelieving Jews were taken out. And Paul says that basically, when the Jews are grafted back in, 
and he promises that they will be grafted back in. He says that this grafting in this grafting operation, the Jews will take much more readily than the wild olive branches took. So when the wild olive branches were grafted in by the master gardener, that was a good thing. That's, he did it on purpose. But Paul argues that the Jews, when they're grafted back in, are going to take much more readily. But in the meantime, they're not in the tree. In the meantime, uh, they are cultivated olive branches that are in a burn pile next to the olive grove. Okay, that's one illustration. The other illustration is uh, in Galatians, where Paul says these two women are two covenants. So Abraham had Sarah as his wife, his free wife, and Hagar was Sarah's servant, her Sarah's slave. And so Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham as a means of raising up seed for Abraham. It was like uh, have a have a child for Sarah by proxy. And of course, after that, Sarah gets pregnant. So Sarah gives birth to Isaac, and Hagar had already given birth to Ishmael. Now, now that Ishmael, the, the son of the bondwoman, is living in the same tent complex with Isaac, the child of promise, Sarah, and, and then Ishmael, uh, winds up mocking Isaac. And Sarah sees it and demands that Hagar and Ishmael be put away. And so Abraham is greatly distraught over this, but God says, no, Sarah's right. And so he puts Hagar away. And, but it's very interesting in the Genesis account where God then takes good care of Hagar. He preserves her, supplies her with water, prevents Ishmael from dying, and gives and gives her a promise about how mighty Ishmael is going to become. And then centuries later in Galatians, Paul says that the unbelieving Jews claim to be Jews, but they're actually Ishmaelites. But they're Ishmaelites descended from Abraham. They're not Mayans or Aztecs or Iroquois. They're not totally detached from Abraham. They're descended from Abraham. They have some sort of connection to Abraham, but that connection is one of slavery. That connection is one of bondage. So to to wrap it up, I would say that this is probably my uh, best illustration of these things. The movie Chariots of Fire is a wonderful movie. And in that movie, you have two very great runners, two Olympians running for the UK. One of them is Eric Little, a Christian who later becomes a missionary to China and dies on the mission field, and uh, Harold Abrams, who is a Jewish runner. They're both gifted. They're both very fast. And, and yet, Eric Little, the Christian, is running on grace. When I run, he says, I feel his pleasure. So it's a joy. It's an exuberance to him. Harold Abrams, on the other hand, is absolutely driven. And it's a wonderful picture of being under grace and being under law. So on the one hand, you have a driven runner, and the other is a runner who's being carried by the, by the winds of the Spirit. Well, that is, a, that is a very good picture of, I think, how it ought to be. 
Christians ought not to envy the Jews their success because they're a high-performance people and they're driven like Carol Abrams was. They Rather, they should run under the grace of God, seeking the grace of God, and as they do, they're going to win the respect of intelligent Jews. They're going to win the respect of those who are wanting to wanting the achievement, but they don't like the law aspect of it. And one of the nice touches in that film, and I'll, I'll just end with this, one of the nice touches in that film, uh, Chariots of Fire, is it begins and ends with the funeral of Harold Abrams, uh, I think in the, in the 1970s, a senior statesman in British athletics. But the thing that's striking is um, his funeral occurs in a Christian church. It is a Christian funeral. Always will be God. So, continuing on with episode 306 in the podcast. So, okay, fellow hamartiologists, it's time for us to move on to, to those sins in the New Testament that begin with the letter Iota. Today's sin in, is the word ios, which means poison. I-O-S, ios which means poison. Now, perhaps surprisingly, this does not refer to the sin of putting arsenic in somebody's coffee. That would be a sin. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. That would be a sin to do. But that's not what the New Testament is talking about. This um, word is used two times in the New Testament uh, in the way I'm going to be looking at it, once in Romans and once in James. And in both instances, it refers to sins of the tongue. There's a third use of, of this word, where the translators chose the word rust to describe it, and this gives us a sense of the corrupting nature of it. We see that in James 5.3. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. All right, so your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them, the corruption of them, shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh. Like, it's like a gangrenous kind of thing. Now, the two instances that refer to speech are these. Remember, the word is ios, which means poison. In Romans 3.13, it says, Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. The poison of asps is under their lips. In other words, these unconverted people have a mouth full of venom. And this is an obvious metaphor referring to the destructive nature of their speech. And interestingly enough, not surprisingly, James says the same thing in James 3.8, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison, full of deadly poison. When we speak out of turn, when we are sinning with the tongue, the thing that we should understand is, is the tongue is not something that delivers a mild bruise now and then. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. The poison of asps is under their lips. So we're talking about vipers. We're talking about rattlesnakes. We're talking about a tongue full of deadly poison. All right, so continuing on with episode 306 in the podcast, the book I want to uh, uh, mention to you, commend to you now, is uh, The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer. 
in recent years, I've been revisiting uh, Schaefer and periodically chipping away at different books that he uh, that he wrote. Now, when I was a young, callow youth, I was in the Navy at the time, I remember, I made my first foray in trying to read Schaefer was Escape from Reason. And I remember, I, I remember making a joke to somebody about how, how come this Presbyterian is speaking in tongues? <laughs> yeah, he's, I was not used to or accustomed to or aware of a lot of the people or concepts that he was talking about in Escape from Reason. And so a bunch of it just whistled by my head. Um, but after I got out of the Navy and Schaefer became more and more of a thing, and uh, his How Should We Then Live came out, and then his film series, uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, I began to appreciate Schaefer more and more. I remember we sponsored showings of those documentaries at the University of Idaho campus that we used him as part of the outreach. And he was someone that I took in in the 1970s, right? So, and appreciated him very much. There were a number of things I learned from him. And then, like I said, a couple of years ago, I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back through and read some of his older stuff again. Uh, my wife and I watched through How Should We Then Live again. I read the, through Christian Manifesto again, the God, uh, Escape from Reason again, and, and now I just finished The God Who Is There. The thing that strikes me about it is that not much has changed. The, the needs are the same. The apologetic approach needs to be the same. I think a lot of us could do well by refurbishing our practical on the street apologetic by returning to Schaefer. He has some good ways of framing the discussion that I think we could put to really good use today. The centerpiece of his apologetic approach would be escape from reason. He is there and he's not silent and the God who is there. Uh, those would be the places that I would begin. <laughs> 